Hello, Ecclesia. Pastor Ian Graham here. Merry Christmas. Hope this time, either leading up to Christmas or right around Christmas, has been a gift to you. A time of welcoming God's presence, of uh, maybe even redefining and uh, re-clarifying on some things in your life. And this past Sunday, we had a question and response time to cap off our Garden to City series and just really want to just open it up for interaction and dialogue um, as we lead towards Christmas, as we come into the new year. And so I wanted to just uh, fill this in on the podcast and really just have a record of some of the things that we talked about. I thought they were really beautiful questions and, um, you know, obviously answering them on the spot is, is slightly different than answering them here in my office. But just wanted to be able to, uh, you know, maybe their questions that were asked by people in the room would be a gift to you wherever you find yourself today. And so today would just be a, a, a quick uh, run through of some of the questions that we interacted with this past Sunday. And so I pray as always that uh, these teachings, this content is a blessing to you. And I, I pray that you are finding the reality of God with us, with you during this Advent and moving into the Christmas season. So the first question that we answered or responded to, and again, a couple of disclaimers as we get into these. Um, first of all, uh, there are questions that we naturally ask because of our need and desire to know, our curiosity. Uh, it, it's something human to explore and to probe deeper. But there are questions that we ask that have been asked since the dawn of time. And so in no way am I in these uh, question response times uh, somehow uh, purporting that I can answer these questions that have been asked since really humans began to ponder these things, really began to be sentient beings. And so that's one, one of the helpful things to call it a response time. And so what I'm trying to do is to offer in humility and in a sense of my own perspective, even my own perspective as I see it right now. I don't know about you, but I've certainly had things in my life that I have thought about deeply and over the course of that journey have begun to change my mind. And so uh, this is from the vantage point of my perspective as it is in life, which again, my perspective means very limited, very finite and flawed. And so I'm just trying to offer a foothold. And what I've found about these answers to questions that are, uh, you know, questions that are so mysterious and big that we really uh, struggle to really come to some like just hard and fast conclusion. What I've found is that these kinds of questions and the answers don't compress down. You know, we want to have the truth and we almost wield it like a weapon. But these kinds of questions and answers, especially when it pertains to things, matters of God, are not things that we can get our hands around and control. And they don't compress down into something that we can just carry around. Rather, if it's, it's about God, it's about God uh, getting control of us. It's about opening up our lives to him, to the mystery, to, uh, to relationship. And so uh, I just want to offer the disclaimer that these are answers in the sense that they are offered to be helpful. They are not answers in the sense that this is the once and for all answer that anybody who thinks differently than this is wrong. Or, uh, you know, this is the, uh, the 
solution to the problem that has plagued humanity throughout uh, the, the existence of humankind. Um, again, nothing like that is going on over the next couple of moments here, but just offered in humility, offered as a means of helping, but also offered with a sense of, I've thought about some of these things and I, I hope they're helpful to you. Okay, the first question as we get into this, that was asked in, uh, in the context of our, we had just a text in question feature. Uh, so the first question that was asked is, we've talked about story, and how can we know that Jesus' story is the true story? How do we know that Jesus' story is the way and there aren't other ways? And this, I mean, what, what an important question. And, and the first thing I, I always want to acknowledge with this question is there's so much compassion built into this question. You know, we tend to look at our world and... You know, especially now, I, I think we, we look at our circumstances. If you grew up in the West, uh, you think like, well, you know, perhaps I'm a Christian because I grew up in a, in a culture that, you know, though it is not by any means Christian, has that veneer to it. And perhaps my parents took me to church. But what about somebody who grows up in a culture that uh, doesn't know anything about Jesus? Uh, and so usually there's a ton of compassion that's offered up within the context of this question. And so for me, uh, the first thing I want to do is, is uh, you know, we, we began this series talking about story. And, and really, our lives and the quality of our lives will be defined by the story that we see our lives as a part of. And the first thing I want to do when it comes to talking about, you know, quote-unquote competing narratives is to see that there are, in fact, different stories being told. Again, we live in a society that celebrates tolerance, and that's a good thing, but, but tolerance often breeds the underpinning philosophy that all stories are the same. And so that's a postmodern idea, is that we, don't, we can't know truth, that truth is unknowable, and actually the postmodern uh, philosophical underpinning is that Post, uh, a truth is actually not something that is a, it has a valid existence. And so all stories that are you know, seeking to make truth claims are essentially the same. But when we look at the stories themselves, you know, if you take religious stories, for instance, the story of, of Islam, the story of what it means to be a Hindu or a Buddhist, when you look at these stories... The first thing that we can do with some charity and honesty is to offer that they are not, in fact, the same story. The story of Jesus, as we celebrate at Christmas, the God of the universe, the creator of the world, coming into the confines of the world is vastly different from the story that is as it's portrayed in, you know, say, Islam. Islam uh, has a dualistic approach. It has a, a God who is completely transcendent outside the time and space. It's a, a monist kind of world. And for us, we, though we have a God who is transcendent, this transcendent God of Philippians 2 says, though he did not consider equality with God as something to be held onto, but rather he emptied himself, kenosis. And so we can see qualitatively that the stories that are being told are vastly different. And so many thinkers, people like N.T. Wright and C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien have remarked upon the story as it stands. The Christian story is that it's not the story that you would make up. It's not the story that you would write. 
You think of the, the Greek myths, the stories that were told about the gods, and those stories kind of make sense from a human vantage point. So often these gods were in conflict with one another and they were using humanity for their own ends and their own glory. And they would manipulate things that were happening and they were, uh, you know, the, the humans existed for their sort of good pleasure and they were far off on Mount Olympus. And they were, you know, they would dip themselves into the affairs of humanity at their whim and they would withdraw, but they weren't affected by what was going on. But we see something quite different in the biblical story. Yes, we were created by God to bring him glory, but that doesn't stop as sort of we're being manipulated or used as instruments of God. Rather, we are being called into relationship with God. The word speaks the world to life. And that word is an invitation to relationship. And so again, I, I just want to set the stage that the stories qualitatively are not in and of themselves the same. And if we, if we uh, you know, are, are willing to allow that there are legitimate truth claims to be made in the world, which we, we can't function without that admission at some level, again, where you start that admission varies whether you believe in God uh, you know, writ large, or whether you uh, believe that, that Jesus is, you know, who he claims to be as far as God in the flesh. But if we offer that admission, then we have to say, okay, these are different stories. Now, I think the second step is the step that not everybody, you know, can take just by sort of logically laying out the facts. It's, for me, I've determined that the Jesus story with all of its being involved in the history of our world, with all of its that it says and reveals about who I think is the God of the universe, I've seen that the Jesus story itself is the story that is the most good, the most beautiful, and the most true. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what that doesn't mean is that there are this, this list of these ideological facts or dogma that we have to assent to. Jesus' way is the way that he lived in his life, death, and resurrection. His way is a calling to a path, to a journey, to live in light of self-giving love. It is the way that his spirit empowers us to live. But when I lay out the stories that are available to me, you know, to sort of define my life, and this is one of the, you know, the great anxieties of what it means to be human in the modern age, is that we are offered stories from every angle, stories that we can define our lives by. But when I lay out those stories, I see that Jesus, you know, with all of the history taken into account, and there are very good arguments that the resurrection is a plausible historical explanation for what happened 2,000 years ago, why the church exists, you know, that Jesus actually was alive. And you can even tune into our Easter teaching. We, we touched on a little bit of that. But when I look at those stories, I see that that is the most beautiful, the most good, the most true. Now, not everybody has made that determination. And this is where we get into the mystery of faith. And I'm not saying that I've come on to some secret that other people have not come upon. But what I am saying is that in seeing that the stories themselves are not the same, and then hearing the Jesus story, and you know, the New Testament talks about that faith comes by hearing the word of God. You know, 
I, I have seen that story. I've seen my life in light of that story. And so to, to answer the question, is Jesus, the Jesus story, is it the only way? Well, again, I can only speak from my personal experience, but I speak on behalf of, of billions who have made the same determination that the Jesus story is the only way that brings life and freedom. It is the only story of a God giving of himself completely so that he could know us eternally. And that story, when you look at even the epic stories that we tell, stories like the Avengers and Harry Potter and the Lord of the Rings, all those stories have this Jesus element, the hero giving themselves on behalf of the side of good, the side of light. And I wonder how often we miss that those stories resonate with us so deeply because they are a reflection of the one true story. And so I can't say anything to you definitively to say Jesus is definitely the way. But what I can say is that there are philosophical things that we should look at and say, okay, what is the story that's being told? And what I can say for me is that Jesus is most certainly the way, the truth, and the life. And that's why I do what I do, to help other people see that and so that God can make himself more real to me in this life. All right, again, questions that have been asked since the dawn of time. But that's just one way to kind of look at it. All right, the next question we got to was, how do we trust what is said in the Bible is man's interpretation versus God's word? And you can see just the impulse behind this question. How do we, how do we know when God is speaking? How would we know? Well, a couple of things that we need to consider in light of this conversation. First of all, Maybe you are somebody who speaks a language other than English. I'm assuming you speak English because you're listening to me uh, on this podcast in English, but perhaps you speak a second language or even a third language. If you know anything about the Bible, the Bible was not written in English. Uh, English was obviously a later linguistic development, uh, you know, as it pertains to the timeline of the scriptures themselves. And if you speak another language, how many times have you had the experience where things don't automatically line up? There's not a one-to-one -one word equivalent for something in English and something in, say, Greek or Hebrew or uh, maybe you speak Spanish or French or you speak Korean. These, two, these things always don't line up. It's because languages are not like mathematics. They don't have these uh, formula that always work. Languages are, are pictorial or they, uh, they have different functions. And so languages themselves don't always have equivalents. And so when we talk about the Bible being written in a different language from a different culture, we think about how often words themselves are fluid. How a word may mean one thing in one time period and then may come to mean something completely different in another time period. And I say all that to say is that language itself has this quality to it. We, we tend to want to be as so precise in a way that we can sort of control and grab on to things. But that's not what the Bible seems to be wanting to do. The Bible always is an act of 
listening to translation. People have translated, which means every act of translation is an act of interpretation. But even if you go further beyond that, God begins the world by speaking. God said, let there be light. And then in John chapter 1, it says the word became flesh and the word moved into the neighborhood. The word that brought the world to life has taken on our skin and bones in Jesus of Nazareth. And so it would seem that a theme that runs throughout the scriptures is that God is wanting to be in conversant relationship with us. Now, how many of you have had the experience where somebody says something to you with the best of intentions or the best of motivations and we misinterpret it? You see, communication is always this place where things are not precise. We try to be as careful as we can with words, but words are offered and they are spoken out of motivations, out of you know, the confines of, of language, and then they are received by people who respond to them, who internalize them. And so God is a relational God. And so to the question, how can we know whether it's God's word or, or, or a human word? Well, what we begin to do is you know, acknowledge, first of all, that that is not a thing. Um, you know, that it's, you know, we try to think of like, okay, how do I get to this pure, unadulterated word of God? And that's, that's a very modernist idea that if we could just have the, the right information, that we could internalize it and respond in the right way. But that's not what God is trying to do. God is trying to get us to see his heart. And to do that, he has given us Jesus. Jesus is the word made flesh. And so, you know, as, as we sort of distance ourselves from the idea that there's this clear-cut definition between human words and God's word, you know, even the way the Bible came to be is so scandalous in the fact that it is God inspiring human authors. There's this, you know, like not a clear delineation there's this blurred line between the divine and the human. And that's how God works in the world. It's how God worked in the beginning. Let us make man in our image. It's how God redeems the world in Jesus, fully God, fully man in the incarnation. And so I think for us, we, we rid ourselves of that, um, you know, that aspiration, that there's this pure, unadulterated word of God behind this. And if we could just get to that. It's kind of a Gnostic idea. And then... We look at Jesus. Jesus becomes a lens. Hebrews 1 says, In the past, God has spoken in many ways and at many times, but now he has spoken fully and finally in his Son, who is the exact representation of his being. We look at Jesus, and we see God's heart. We see God's word living among us. Now, Jesus doesn't make things any less complicated. Jesus comes telling stories. Jesus comes challenging people, you know, talking about our lives, you know, as live with little faith. I mean, Jesus doesn't simplify the situation, not in a way that becomes simplistic, but he does narrow our focus. And we, even Jesus says that all the words that were written in the scriptures were about him. And so for us, we start with Jesus. We look at the lens, or we look at the scriptures through the lens of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and we see it all as pointing to him, as built upon the foundation of his life, of his revelation of God. 
And we trust, and this is where we get mostly uncomfortable. We, you know, if we could just have the word and almost like, you know, you, you, you have this idea of the people in, in, you know, after, as they come out of Egypt in the Exodus, they want to gather up all of the manna. They want to store it all up so they don't have to do it every day. But we have to go to God every day to know his word, to know his fresh word for us. We can't hoard it up. We can't store it up. You know, we don't live by bread alone, as Jesus tells the tempter, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And this is our sustenance. This is our life. And so this is an invitation to relationship, to faith, and to be being led by the Spirit. We have to uh, allow God to interpret God's self to us daily and to store up those words in our heart, to store up that life in us. And so, um, you know, for me, this is an invitation to faith. It's an invitation to walk with God daily. You know, as Peter remarks, he alone has the words of eternal life. And so we begin to trust. Now, I do think there are a couple things we can look for when it comes to um, church settings. Does the, does the teaching, the preaching, does the liturgy itself focus on Jesus? Is it centered upon his sal- salvation work? I think that's one way that we can you know, begin to trust. The second thing is, do the leaders look like Jesus? You know, do they respond like he does? Do they lead in the way that he does? Are they kind? Are they seeking to, to build others up? Are they holding other people accountable? Are they holding themselves accountable? Do they serve? Do they wash the feet and lead like Jesus did? You know, and, and those are like, to me, some things, they're markers. You know, we can begin to trust the things people say by the things that they do. You know, the early church would say that we don't speak great things, we live them. And I think that is such an invitation for us as we begin to think about what does it mean for the word of God to take root in our hearts? But the answer, how do we trust what is said is, the, is, is, uh, is either uh, human interpretation or God's word. Uh, we can't always know those things, but we can have a lens through which to see, does this look like Jesus? Okay. We have two more here. Okay, so the question was, how do we cope best when the way to our, when the best way to care for ourselves is to cut someone off? Uh, how do we demonstrate God's love for us when we need to withdraw? Now, this is a really important question. I think so many of us can put ourselves in the shoes of the person who asked this question. We've had times in our lives, most of us, where there's been some sense of relational strife. And we know that the best thing for us, the best thing for our limits, our mental health, our spiritual health, is to withdraw our relationship from that person. And I think there's, there's several important nuances here. And the first thing I want to say, and this is a, you know, maybe coming at this from a different angle, but I want to say this very clearly. In instances of abuse, you know, whether it be emotional, whether it be spiritual, whether it be sexual, physical abuse, in those kinds of instances, the mandate, the thing you are always able and called to do is to withdraw, is to get out of the relationship. You are never called to offer some sort of God's forgiveness by staying 
in proximity when you have the power and the agency to leave. And I know there are, I know there are just terrible times where abused people don't have that ability. But in these settings, if you are in a relationship with somebody who is abusing you, you can get out of that relationship. And I'll say this to the church will be here for you as you, uh, to, to provide for you the necessary resources to do that. So I want to say that very plainly. You are never called to stay in situations of abuse as some sort of manifestation of God's forgiveness. And here's, here's why I say that so plainly. Is, is we, we see Jesus on the cross. And even as people are heaping down curses upon him, and he, they're saying, you know, he saved others, why can't he save themselves? And Jesus responds to them, not with cursing, but with blessing. He says to them, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But there's a couple of important things. Like we see that, we're like, oh, but we're supposed to forgive immediately. And even as Peter and Jesus are talking, and you know, you know they're talking about how many times we're supposed to forgive our, our sister, our brother, our neighbor who for, uh, sins against us. And Jesus says, not, not just seven times, but 70 times, seven times. We see those instances and we're like, okay, I guess it's planned. I guess that's just what I have to do. But we have to understand that God, Jesus on the cross, is God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's the whole point of it. Is that God is doing the work of salvation. We, first of all, when it comes to our relationships, are not God. We are limited. And so especially in situations, circumstances of abuse, the person inflicting the abuse is, is uh, you know, profaning the image of God in the person who is abused and they're profaning it in them. And what we see throughout the scriptures is that in those moments when, when God himself is rejected, he will withdraw. You know, we see this in the exile, the lead up to the exile, is that the people of Israel are, are rejecting God through idolatry, through, through false worship, through their own greed. And God says, I will give you over to the, the consequences of your sin. And so for us in a relational context where somebody is inflicting abuse, you have all the God-given freedom to be able to withdraw and to say, I'm not going to maintain this relationship. And so I think it's so important for us to understand that the kind of forgiveness God calls us to is radical. It is powerful and profound, but it is not an invitation to stay in abusive situations. And I think sometimes we just need to hear that plainly. A couple of other things. First of all, God does empower us towards radical forgiveness. I think of the young girl, I think she's 14, 15 years old. Uh, she, her uh, testimony, her video was recently being passed around on social media. Her father was a Houston police officer who was killed in the line of duty. And she was speaking at his funeral. She says, I want to hate the man who did this, but I cannot. In fact, I pray that he will come to know the saving life and grace of Jesus. And it's, it's so moving and uh, such a, a just radical call to who Jesus has uh, made us to be. And so God can and does empower us towards that kind of forgiveness. And that is the ultimate end and aim. But the other side of that is, and I know, you know, for, for my own life, I've had this experience, is that there are times 
when forgiveness doesn't come right away. When there's been, you know, and, and again, the best of intentions on both parties, but things fell apart. The relationship did not thrive. I had my own perspective. That person had theirs of me. And forgiveness, it just seems like something that's, that's harder won and comes more slowly. Now, I can, I can bear witness to my own experiences with this, that God eventually lightens my heart, that he's eventually been able to show me my own part in the dysfunction in, in a really surgical and gracious way. But oftentimes, forgiveness is an invitation to faith, to journey with God, to bring things back to him that we carry. And I think so often we think that we should just be able to forgive and forget and that, that, that it's over. But the reality is forgiveness often has a much longer arc to it. And forgiveness often involves things like, you know, as Jesus models for us on the cross, things like restitution, like a propitiation, like these things that, that Jesus models and shows to us on the cross. And so I, I think that we sometimes put a lot of pressure on ourselves as it pertains to forgiveness. So just to kind of summarize, I, I think there's a couple of things uh, that, that are important here. First of all, in abusive situations, I just want to say to you pastorally, plainly, if you have the agency, get out. And if you have even just the agency to ask for help, to signal to someone that you need help, and then take that step. And I pray that the church, whether you're part of Ecclesia here in Princeton or whether you're part of another church, I pray that the church will be there to surround you and to walk with you and to be the body of Christ to you. Second, if you're in a situation where things just fell apart, Understand that God may be inviting you into a season of examining your own heart, of examining how you have contributed to the darkness and brokenness, and also of releasing that person to the grace of God, of giving them over, of, of refusing to judge, as Jesus tells us we should not do. And so how do we know when it's time to withdraw from somebody? I would say I don't know if there's any hard and fast markers but I do think that, that if, you know, if you sort of feel the compulsion to withdraw from people, oftentimes that's an acknowledgement of our limits. It's an acknowledgement of you know, the, the fact that we are finite. But if we disregard people, if we, if we say that that person is you know, dead to us or that person can't be forgiven, then we are judging in a way that condemns. This is the kind of judgment that Jesus warned us against. But I think the question for us is, how do we enter into a process of walking with Jesus in faith so that we could forgive? And I, that's the, you know, to kind of land this portion, I think we always want to keep forgiveness as the end, as the harmony of all things that Jesus invites us to, the shalom that Jesus has shown for us, as he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Forgiveness is the goal, the telos, of who we're trying to be as Christians. And I think sometimes we shortchange that process as well. But we acknowledge our limits. We, we don't say that we have to forgive people if we are locked in an abusive situation. That's not, forgiveness is not sh us showing up. Forgiveness is us withdrawing. And we also trust that God will be with us as we walk the long journey towards forgiving that person and what the manifestation of what that will look like. All right, the last question, I thought was a really good one. 
What are the biggest challenges to Christians being the royal priesthood today? Uh, during this teaching series, we talked about how the people of God, you know, in Exodus was the people of Israel, the, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, in, in the New Testament, the church, you know, the continuation of that story, Romans 4, Galatians. You know, what does it mean to be the, the royal priesthood, the people who bear God's name? who live in such a way that it says to the world that there is another story. And the person asked, what are the biggest challenges to Christians being the royal priesthood today? And during the, the teaching time, I said two, and I think there's actually three. So I just want to focus on those really quickly. The first one, I think our challenge to being the royal priesthood is uh, distraction. There are just so many things that we can flood our lives with, so many ways that we can numb our attention spans, so many ways not to be contemplative of what God is doing in us, what he's wanting to draw us into. And I think so often, because our attention are so truncated, because we are so uh, just disoriented by the constantly spinning and just sort of uh, neurotic pace that we run at, is that we're trying to draw from a very uh, shallow well. And we find that the well, in fact, doesn't have much to offer. And so what are we paying attention to? The priest is called to pay attention to God, to be the person who is looking after the affairs of God, to, to see that he is known rightly and worshiped rightly. And I think so often, we are just so easily distracted and our, our attentions have been uh, you know, spent on other lesser things. And it's just so prevalent in our culture. I know it's so prevalent. It's a constant battle in my own life. What am I paying attention to? Am I allowing God's space to speak? The second, I think, is that we don't see our lives as, as congruent wholes, but rather we see them in compartments. We don't see our lives as an embodiment of this priesthood that God has called us to. We have a small understanding often of the gospel of Jesus, of what he has won on the cross and his resurrection and his enthronement. And, and we live out this small picture by the way that we set up these walls in our lives. And so what are the holy things in your life? What are the things that are manifestations of God's joy, his blessing, his spirit? And throughout this series, we tried to argue that, that God made us to play, to explore, to make order, to bring justice. God made us to, to sit down to a table with loved ones. God made us to be a people of celebration, that all of these things are a manifestation of God's presence. Uh, all of these things are an embodiment of our calling to the priesthood of Jesus. God made us to live out vocational lives, uh, to, to do the thing that, you know, as Frederick Buechner says, where the world's great hunger meets your great gladness. God made us to find joy and not to feel guilty about those things that are in line with his Holy Spirit in line with the life of the new creation. 
But I think oftentimes we don't see it that way. I mean, how many of us woke up today and said, I am going to, I am a priest of the living God. Everything that I do today is going to be a manifestation of his kingdom and his glory. Whether it be sitting there, studying a spreadsheet, sending that email, watching that little child, whether it be teaching that class, we don't see ourselves that way. And so I think compartmentalization rather than congruence is a big you know, detractor to what it means to be the priesthood of God. We have to recover this sense of wholeness, this beautiful phrase in Ephesians chapter 1, that, that Jesus is, is heading up all things in his lordship. Anakafalio sasmai in the Greek, that all of it's being gathered up in him. And so I think compartmentalization is one a challenge to, to Christians being the royal priesthood. The last one I didn't say, I thought of after, you know that feeling, when you think of the perfect response, 10 minutes too late, was affluence. Affluence. We are so, you know, again, I speak broadly and generally of Christians in America. If this is not true of you, it's not true of you. But in my own experience, and many, in the experiences of many of my peers, we are not in proximity to the brokenness of the world. And the beautiful thing that Jesus, our great high priest, shows us is that when God comes to the world, he doesn't go to the centers of power or comfort. He goes to the margins. He goes to the weak. He goes to those who have been told that they have no place in God's kingdom. And he tells them the kingdom of heaven is near, that God is with you. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I think so often we have this buffer zone between us and the pain of this world. And that is not being a priest in the way of our great high priest. It is not being a priest that sees the redemption of the world brought about, not in spite of suffering, but through it. And so affluence is one that I think is so prevalent in our uh, cultural moment at this time. Well, friends, I hope that these questions were uh, convicting to you. I hope this time was helpful to you. Uh, whether you're on a drive, kind of going to, to celebrate your uh, holiday season, uh, whether you're, I, I pray wherever this finds you that it's a gift to you. I pray that it's stirred some things in you. And I pray that during this Christmas season, that you would receive and step into a new stirring, a new sense of God's calling on your life, a new sense of how God wants to be God with you. And I pray his richest blessings over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. We'll see you in the new year. Grace and peace to you.